0: Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. Let me also extend a welcome if you're visiting. That we're uh, we're glad you're with us. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning. We're in uh, right near the end of a series on the first half of the uh, Gospel of Mark, and just to let you know what's coming up, we're going to actually be wrapping up this series next week, and then for the summer we're going to be back in the Book of Genesis. Last summer we looked at Genesis one through eleven. In this summer, we're going to be looking at the story of Abraham as we'll look, take a look at Genesis chapter 12 through uh, 23. So that comes up in, in two weeks, and then we'll pick back up again with Mark, uh, likely next spring. Now, before we get started, let, let me just tell you this. I, I want you to know that your voices have, have been heard. I got a helpful, couple of helpful comments this week that, once again, last week I was speaking too quickly. I had fallen back into my old ways. So... I want you to know over the next few weeks, I'm going to experiment with just the right amount of coffee, and we're going to try to get the speed (laughs) just right, so you can let me know after today. This series on the book of Mark, we we are talking about the fact that Mark tells us about and proclaims to us, he preaches to us, Jesus the King who has come, and so each week we've been talking about what what does that mean for us. As Mark tells us about Jesus' words and his deeds and his identity, what does it mean that he is? our kings. We pick back up with that this morning. We'll be in Mark chapter 8, and we'll be reading uh, verses 22 through 33. If you're using one of our Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 844. Let me pray for us, and we'll we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you this morning and ask that you would meet with us as you so promised to do. Lord, as we open up the pages of Scripture, it is your word to us. Would you Speak through it to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Some of us come this morning with ears that are ready to hear. Others of us may be not so sure what we're even doing here, much less that we could open up this old book and hear the voice of God. Would you surprise us? Would you renew our hearts? Would you draw us to you? And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and King. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him, not, begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. for our good and for his glory. We see once again uh, that Mark tells us about Jesus the King. And this morning we're going to see that the King is now being revealed, as we'll talk a little bit more in a moment. This, this passage is the pivot point of the, of the whole book of Mark. So far, these eight chapters have been driving forward to this exact moment. And so what we're going to see this morning as we look at Mark is in Mark chapter 8 is that... In order to come to spiritual life, and then in order to thrive in that spiritual life, you have to do three things. You have to see, and you have to say, and you have to move. You have to see, you have to say, you have to move. First, you have to see. This passage is about seeing, right? It begins, opens up with this blind man. What happens? Uh, Jesus comes to this town, and these people bring him this, this man who is blind, and, and they ask him, to heal him and, and then Jesus takes him he does he does some unusual things here if you're familiar with the healings of Jesus for one thing he takes the man and separates him from the crowd he says come on over here and and then he then he spits on his eyes on his hands and puts his hands on him and he's, it's it's very Jesus can can heal people we see sometimes from across town he just has to say the word he doesn't have to do any of this but in this instance his hands are on this man And he's healed. And we'll see a little bit more. Another unusual, in fact, totally unique thing about this healing is that it happens in two stages. The first time he healed, he he puts his hands on him and he he says, can you see anything? He says, I can see, you know, but it's, it's like trees walking around. And so he puts his hands on him again and the man receives this complete healing, this complete sight. He comes to bring sight. But you see the whole passage. It's about Jesus coming to heal and to bring sight as well. Because the same thing comes and happens with Peter and the rest of the disciples as well. That's what's going on with them. That they are blind as well. And they are beginning to see now at this moment with Jesus. So as we look at this blind man and more at Peter and his disciples, we're going to see a couple things about seeing. This passage is about seeing. And first, seeing is a gift from God. You notice that in the passage here. What, what happens? What, what does this blind man do in order to make Jesus heal him or to somehow pay him for it or absolutely nothing? Jesus comes as he always does and brings this complete free healing. And here it is, him coming and giving him this gift of sight. Jesus comes and opens his eyes that he might see. But you see, he comes and gives that same gift of sight, and it is a gift to Peter and the disciples as well. Okay, now here's where we see Mark at his literary finest, okay? I, I'm, I'm incredibly prejudiced in this direction, but I will say that Mark clearly was an English major when he was in college. And so we, of course, get benefit from all that training that he had. But he, here's what Mark does as one crafting the story of Mark. I mean, you know, all the all of the Gospels, they... They tell the story of Jesus from different angles and to some degree with different purposes. And here's what what Mark does. Look at the way he crafts this. If you go back to the end of chapter 7 where we were a few weeks ago, there's a a healing there where Jesus heals a man who was deaf and dumb, could not hear, could not speak. And then here we have a passage where Jesus heals a blind man. And right in between that, in the first part of chapter 8, and this is what we talked about last week, Jesus confronts the disciples about their own inability to understand who he is, and he looks at them right in the middle of that, in uh, in verse eighteen of chapter eight, and he says, "Do you have eyes but you don't see? Do you have ears to, but you don't hear?" And he says that right after healing somebody who was deaf, and right before he heals somebody that was blind. You see, Mark is using those stories; he's telling them in this order, so we'll see that this this call to see and hear is central to what Jesus comes to give. So that's, that's all happening in chapter 8. And then he goes from this miracle of sight and he starts talking about Peter. And he starts talking about the rest of the disciples who so clearly up to this point don't see. And you see, Mark puts this here that we might read this passage about Peter's confession to Jesus and his conversation with them in light of what's just happened with this healing of this blind man. Now Mark could have just said, all right, now listen up. This guy was blind, and the disciples are blind too. But he's a better craftsman than that. Instead, he puts it right next to each other. Now, Matthew, when he tells the story in chapter 16, Matthew just, Matthew just sort of shoots straight for it. Here's, here's what Matthew says in chapter 16 when Simon says this confession, you are the Christ. Matthew 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What's he saying? He says, blessed are you, Peter, because God has opened your eyes. Because God has healed you. Because God has made you see. And that's what Mark is showing us by putting it right next to this healing of the blind man. Matthew and Mark both telling us that, it, that we are meant to see. And that that is a gift from God. It's the kind of thing that Jesus says in other places too. John chapter 6, he says to his disciples, no one can come to me. Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. No one can come to me unless he can see, unless the Father turns the lights on, unless he is able to understand and finally see what is true about me. It's what Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 2. He speaks of our being saved by grace. He says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You see the point of what Mark is showing us and the point of what Jesus tells us and what the point of what Paul summarizes for us is that it is God who opens our eyes to see who Jesus is and to have faith in him. But you see when Peter sees that when God opens his eyes I also want you to see that this is not some sort of abstract leap into the into spiritual darkness for Peter. Like he doesn't know anything about Jesus and suddenly out of his lips comes this proclamation that you are the Christ keep in mind that Peter has been with Jesus for some number of months we don't know how long yet we do know he's been with him for 8 chapters in the gospel of mark right and peter didn't make this great declaration when Jesus came to him on the side of the sea of galilee as he was fishing and said come and follow me and peter didn't look at him and says i say i get it you are you are the Christ i'll follow you you see peter comes and he makes this declaration because god has opened his eyes but as From Peter's end, as Peter works this through, what's he doing? He is now seeing Jesus and putting together all the pieces of everything he's actually experienced of Jesus. All that he's seen, all that he's heard. And as we're going to see in a minute, it is clear that Peter does not have all of his questions answered yet. He doesn't know everything about Jesus. But he knows enough that as God opens his eyes, he's able to put it together and he says, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Peter begins to see, but here's what we also see about seeing here. Not only is it a gift from God, seeing is progressive. It's also progressive. We saw that with the blind man, that Jesus comes and puts his hands on him, and he sees, sees, but it seems like men or trees walking around, and then Jesus touches him again, and he sees clearly. And did you notice that the coming to sight here for Peter and the disciples, it comes in stages as well, and not just two. I mean, Peter and the others, as they're standing on the side of the sea when he first calls them, they see something enough to draw them, enough to um, grab their imagination, that they come with Jesus to find out who he is. And we see them here as God begins to open their eyes, and Peter, on behalf of the disciples, makes this declaration of, You are the Christ. But once again, they see, but they don't see clearly. And Peter shows it to us by doing what Peter does best, which is to immediately put his foot in his mouth, right after that, because you get this picture that uh, you know we want, we want, we want to see right away. Certainly, the blind man did, and it certainly seems like Peter did. But um, but that's not the way it happens. Just just to back up again, let me let me put it this way. I, I got let me give you an example. I got this from. Matthew, our intern in the summer. It's like we go in and you have faulty eyesight and you want to go in and get LASIK surgery, right? The thing where they just I don't know what they do. They zap your eyes and stuff and you walk out and, and you can see perfectly. But if you if you wear glasses, if you wear contacts and you're like me for decades now, going to since I was a kid, going to the uh, to the eye doctor, you know what it's like? You sit down and they pull that little machine over your eyes, and the eye doctor says in his that the lights are dim and you're about to fall asleep and the doctor says in that very calm voice um, which is clearer here or here <laughs> A or B better here better here <laughs> those who have glasses are the ones laughing so he's you know he's flipping he's flipping the lenses and each time he's trying to figure out is your vision getting clearer sharper are you seeing the way you're supposed to see and you see that's the way it is for Peter and that's the way it is for us it is a long process a beginning to see and coming to see Christ clearly for who He really is. You see, this gift is of seeing is progressive. Seeing Jesus, knowing Him, growing in relationship with Him, it's something that happens to us over, our, over time. Our vision grows sharper as we follow Him, as He teaches us, as we read of Him in Scripture, as we pray to Him, as we worship Him individually and corporately, like on a Sunday morning, as we are taught about Him, And that is why we, in following Jesus, are always to be growing and learning. Have you noticed that there's no point at which you can legitimately just say, okay, I'm done. It's all clicked for me. I get it. Jesus, I understand you in all your completeness, and I I get what that means for my life, and I live completely in line with that. Nothing new to learn. Nothing new to experience. Of course not. Maybe you've... um, Maybe you've experienced the folly of this with a friend or a child or a spouse where at some point in time you effectively, whether you realize it or not, you say this, I know all there is to know about that person, right? Oh, I know that if I say this, I know what my spouse is going to do because they're always that's just the way they're going to react. And what happens? We slam the door on a growing relationship at that point. Because we've frozen something in time and said, people can never change, they can never grow, we can never see them more clearly. See, Jesus comes and says, you don't see me clearly yet, you're getting there. And your life is to be spent in growing clarity of who I am and what it means to follow after me. Maybe you've gotten to the point where um, following, following Jesus does just sort of seem stale. You look around and there's, it's not grabbing your mind and your imagination. I've heard comments like this before, and I've certainly thought them myself as we've turned to a particular book in the Bible, for example, or found out a home group is studying something or whatever. Oh, you guys are studying so-and-so. Yeah, Ephesians, I've, I've read that. You know, case closed, books closed, done. But what do we find as we come with, to Jesus with the expectation that we would be growing in clarity, that we would be learning, that when we come to Scripture that there is a freshness to it, that we have not come to the depths of it yet, that we have not reached the bottom, that there is more for us? Because when we come to God and when we come to Him through Scripture, we come to, to grab hold of one who is limitless, who is fathomless to us. We can know him truly, but we can never exhaust that knowledge. And we are invited in that we might grow in clarity as we walk with him. So we see. This passage is about seeing. That's not all that happens here. This passage is also, as we grow, not only must we see, we also must say that our seeing must lead to speaking. And this also happens in two stages in our story. Um, Jesus sets this up for his disciples as they're walking, and he says... On their, on their way to Caesarea Philippi, which, uh, side note, they're, they're, they're Caesarea Philippi was um, a, a, Roman city, a Roman city where uh, emperor worship was central. He's going to a very pagan place, one that does not look to or know the true God. And as he's on the way to that place, he looks at his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? And they look at him and, and give the list that we saw earlier in Mark chapter 6. They said, well, you know, some people think that you're Elijah. And some people think uh, that, you know, you're a great teacher. You know, some people think this, some people think that, but none of them say, some say that you're this great prophet. But then what happens? As they're batting this around, who do people say that I am? Jesus' question turns. And he goes from this almost abstract question and certainly this uh, sort of anonymous question. You know, when you come and... Uh, before election day, and maybe you keep your political cards sort of close to your chest, and you get in a conversation about various political issues, and you talk back and forth, and you got the freedom just to talk about it, and then somebody looks at you and says, well, who, who are you going to vote for, right? Some of us are very ready to tell that answer. Jesus wasn't, right? He looks, when, when, and so when, G, when they le- turn to Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, okay, now, who do you say that I am? You see, suddenly this abstract and interesting question becomes very intimate and very personal and very pointed for them. We are halfway through the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus has never turned to his disciples and asked him this question, but he does now because this is the hinge for the Gospel of Mark, and this is the hinge for the disciples. They are about to turn one way or another, and there's going to be an irrevocable change for them based on what comes out of their mouth next. And Peter speaks for them, and he says, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the long-awaited King promised to us in the Old Testament. And Jesus confirms what they say and tells them still, Don't tell anyone about this yet. What do you mean, don't tell? I mean, here we are at the great turn in the book of Mark, and here we are, Jesus being proclaimed for who he is. And you, ought to th- and you think the disciples ought to be shouting this from the rooftops. But we see immediately why Jesus says, don't tell anyone yet. Because the answer is because you don't understand what that means, Peter. Right? Because what happens next? Peter says, Jesus begins to tell them about what that means that he's the Messiah. He says, I'm going to suffer at the hands of all the religious leaders. Everybody who has any religious credibility in our world is going to condemn me. And then I'm going to be put to death. then I'm going to be raised from the dead. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Jesus, you've been reading the wrong script, right? Because when I look at the Old Testament, that's not what I read. Because Peter goes back to one strand of Old Testament expectation for the king who was to come, that he would be the one who would bring this great political liberation, that he would be the one that would finally come and set them free and now here Jesus is talking about dying. And Peter says, that cannot be true. What are you talking about? No. Jesus, you are the Messiah, but you have got the wrong picture of who the Messiah is meant to be. See, when Peter comes to Jesus, he comes and speaks. And Jesus doesn't turn away our speaking, but notice the kind of speech he brings. He doesn't bring a question. Um, I don't get it. Jesus, what could you possibly be? What could you possibly mean? Instead, he comes and brings a very hard word here. He comes and brings a rebuke. He begins to take Jesus' side to rebuke him, turn him aside and try to set him straight. Uh, have, Have you ever had the experience... Of um, maybe joking with somebody who's an authority over you, maybe a, a boss or a, a teacher, and, and you you realize at some point as something comes out of your mouth that you have just stepped over that imaginary line. I have, uh, and uh, you, that that feeling of like if I could just pull those wor- words back in, and and that's what Peter has just done here when he realizes he has just overstepped his calling and overstep, overstepped overstepped. His authority. Because our words, as Peter finds right here, and he's going to find better words for the end of Mark, our words have power. When you speak, it commits you to something. So we see, he talks about the blind man coming to see, Peter and the disciples coming to see, but then it is another thing to come and to speak And those words have power. Maybe you know the power of some of those words in your own life. The first time you say to somebody, I love you. And you know for good or for ill, everything is different now. Based on what you just said and based on what you're hoping to hear in response. That our words have power. That we cross a certain line when we begin to speak. And so that's what Peter does as he first confesses, you are the Christ. And we shout, yes, Peter. And then as he he opens his mouth again and we say, no, Peter, no. And he says, and he rebukes Jesus. Well, what we see here in all of this speaking is that we come to see and we come to speak, but Jesus calls us to a third thing as well. Not only to see and to speak, but to move. Okay, When Peter speaks that second set of words, and Jesus rebukes him. He looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Okay? It, it, is, it is hard to imagine more stinging words on the lips of Jesus. He says, Jesus looks at him and says, you are acting in line with Satan right now. You are coming and trying to deflect me from my mission, from what I was called to do. You're coming to me just as Satan came to Jesus in Mark chapter 1 and attempted to, to deflect him from his calling. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes Satan and sends him away. And what happens here? He looks at Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. And he's telling Peter two things. First, he's telling Peter that you are oh so wrong about who I am. But he comes and brings this as a rebuke that is actually cloaked in love. And here's where it is. When he says, Get behind me, He is saying, Peter, get back in line behind me where you belong. We're going to see next week in the next passage here that he calls people. He says, if anyone would come and follow after me. Some of the same words being used here. He turns to Peter and he says, not go away from me, but get back in line behind me. Peter, I am not rejecting you. I'm not cutting you off. But I'm telling you that life is only to be found not in trying to lead me by the hand but in following me and coming with me where I go. He turns to Peter and he says, Let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you why I have come. Let me tell you what kind of king I am and what kind of change that is meant to bring into your life. And Peter has a choice. Is he going to listen to Jesus? Is he going to step back into line? Or is he going to throw it down in disgust? that this King Jesus was not the king that he expected after all. Well, we see that Peter does do exactly what Jesus calls him to do. He comes and steps back into line, because following Jesus begins for us, as it did with Peter, with acknowledging Jesus to be king on his own terms, that he's going to define that for us. So let me ask you this. Where are you telling God that he is off course in your life right now? Where is God just not getting with the program for you? What are the circumstances that he's bringing along the path for you right now that are clearly a divergence from where you ought to be? What are the people that he's bringing into your life right now that are causing challenges that are clearly not the ones that you should have to deal with right now or that I should have to deal with? What are the health struggles that he's bringing that are simply not what is meant to be in the cards for you and Jesus simply doesn't know it yet? Where are you? Where am I? telling God that this is not the way it's supposed to be. What would it be like for us to hear Jesus' rebuke to Peter, to us as well? Get back in line behind me. Your job is to come and follow me and trust that I know what is best for you. Think about this for a minute. What would have happened if Peter got his way? What would have happened if Peter... Had said this to Jesus, Jesus, n- no, this is not the way it is supposed to go. And Jesus had thought about it for a minute. He said, You're right, Peter. This is only going to lead to death. Let's do something else. Right? What if Jesus did not pursue the road that he was on? No death on a cross, no resurrection. No rising from the dead and being raised to the right hand of the Father. No forgiveness of sins. No reconciliation with God. No hope for the future. Nothing to see beyond death. See, if Jesus had listened to Peter, it would have derailed the entire purpose and mission for which Jesus had come, and he would have satisfied this short-term desire of Peter's, it's not supposed to go this way, and everything would have been lost in the process. But instead, what does he do? He turns to Peter and says, no, you need to get back in line behind me. Because Jesus has a decision to make and he continues to follow the mission he's been called to. And we said that this is the turning point in the book of Mark. It is a turning point for his disciples in understanding, beginning to understand who Jesus really is. But it's a turning point for Jesus as well because up until this point in the the gospel of Mark, Jesus has been traveling back and forth along the Sea of Galilee. He'll go to one side, and he feeds 5,000 people, and he gets in the boat, and he goes to the other side, heals this guy you know, uh, that's got these demons, and he goes and heals and he feeds all these miracles as he's bouncing around Galilee. But now, at this confession, Jesus changes direction as well. And he begins the long road to Jerusalem and the cross. That is where the rest of the book of Mark goes as he literally turns his course, turns his direction, and marches to this very death that he promises, that he might come and bring the very life that we need. Just close with this. He's there's seeing, there is speaking, and there is this moving. But as we said, right at the heart of that is that very question that comes to Peter. Who do you say that I am? This is the central question of the book of Mark. And we've hit around it several times in this series in the last number of weeks as Jesus reveals himself and we see people responding one way or another to Jesus. But you see, this is the point in the gospel where it is most clearly put right here on the table for us. Who do you say that I am? And you need to hear that question as a question to you as well. Who do you say that I am? For many of us may be following Jesus for a long, long time now. We still hear that question. Who do you say that I am? And what is it going to mean for you to follow me? To trust you at this, to trust, God says, to trust me at this exact moment in your life. To be able to turn away from your own agenda of, here's how my life ought to be going. Let me trust Jesus and get back in line behind him. Who do you say that I am? And as the one that you proclaim him to be, you say, Jesus, you are the Christ. Are we reflecting that? Are we really living that way? Are we really stepping into our days each day with that sort of assurance of, okay, Jesus is king. And he is the one who is going to define kingship for me. And I only see a little bit. There are days you wake up and everything looks like trees walking around blurry, right? But I am going to trust my God and I will follow Him and I will pray for clearer sight and I will continue to walk towards Him. Who do you say that I am? It's the same call uh, that comes to, to many of us here who are not following Jesus. Same thing. Who do you say that I am? Because you're saying something even through your silence. Is he the one that he proclaims to be? Is he the Christ as he's revealed here in Scripture? Or is he not? See, Mark reminds us this is not just an academic question. It's not just Jesus cruising around Galilee, doing neat tricks for people and giving them bread, and then going and dying a terrible death. He proclaims to us one who is and is claims to be the Son of God come to save us. So at the end of the day, we have to answer that question. Who do you say that I am? Am I who I say I am, or am I something... Else. But I say that simply to say this you are answering that question now. What answer are you giving? Maybe you're looking around saying, Well, I've heard a lot about Jesus, but I'm not sure I have enough to say what Peter said yet. Well, in some ways, you have a lot more than Peter did. Because we have even here the story of Mark as he lays it out for us in this organized way. It's easy to think if we were only in the disciples' shoes, it would all be clear. If we could just see him heal, if we could just see him feed all these people we would believe but you see jesus is surrounded by people like the pharisees who see all this stuff and don't believe either but peter and the others looking and saying as the penny drops you are the christ how are we answering that question today because it comes to you and to me today seeing and moving and speaking in young life ministry to high school students Uh, one of the things they do is they they have these summer camps uh, and and weekend camps during the year and, and you hear a series of talks as you spiritually explore who is Jesus and at the end of those they have a thing called the say so where kids can get up and speak that have come to faith in Christ and tell in front of all their friends and those around them here is what has happened to me as I have met Jesus because what young life inherently does in that moment is they say it's not enough simply to see but we must speak So when Jesus comes to us as well, even this morning, and he says, who do you say that I am? There comes a point where we don't simply give mental assent, but we speak. That we give profession of faith. That we come and say, not only do I think this is true, I realize now it is true for me. And so for you, if the penny is dropping, come talk to me. Come talk to one of our elders. And see this for what Jesus actually presents it as here in the book of Mark. A turning point. The road is going in one direction, one direction, and it immediately veers in another direction. Are we going to follow where Jesus goes? He says, who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and as we see uh, so clearly put on the table for us this morning, this very central call of the book of Mark, this very central call that you speak to all of us of who do you say that I am? Lord, would you awaken in us faith and belief where it is absent? Would you stir it back up where um, it has grown dim? Would you give us a joy in our salvation as we follow Jesus, the true King, and as we have our eyes open more and more to the wonder of what that means? We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.